You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Kathleen West on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. Well, it's actually Are We There Yet is out in paperback. It came out yesterday when you're hearing this. And then she also has another uh, new release coming out next month, Home or Away. And you need to go ahead and pre-order that so that on release day, it can hit your Kindle or, you know, uh, be delivered to your mailbox or go visit your local bookstore. All of those uh, are available to you now. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Kathleen, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That is a great first question. And I think it's I think I first had the inkling in fourth grade. We had an assignment to write like a fictional story. And before that time, I can't remember ever being asked to write fiction in school. And I got really into the assignment and I wrote like a, it was a long pirate story with like a treasure map. And um, I was very excited and into it. And my teacher actually like wondered if I had gotten too much help from my parents, which I was both offended by and um, complimented by. That is is so funny because, um, you know, I, I've heard a couple of people tell tell me that before that that teachers are, um, you know, kind of grill them like who helped you with this and uh, yes. and, <laughs> and what a compliment and yeah what you know what do you think of me that's you know that it's such a uh, an interesting place for a fourth grader to be put. Yeah, and I've thought about that moment a lot since then. I'm typically a person who is well-liked by teachers, and I am a teacher myself, and I love schools, but that teacher and I were just a bad fit, and I don't think she liked me very much, so I actually think about that conversation quite often. <laughs> I had a number of those relationships, but we won't go into that. Today. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, so so Kathleen, um, what was it that... that uh, that brought you to education. What I'm, I'm my oldest son uh, is a seventh grade English teacher, and um, you know we've had many discussions about um, you know schooling and and you know and and he is very passionate about um, about connecting with these kids and and you know uh, fostering a love of writing and and reading and and all of that. Um, what was it for you that that brought you to uh, to this uh, career that that doesn't get n- nearly the love that it should? Well, you know, for me, it always sort of felt like a calling. I decided that I wanted to be an English teacher when I was in seventh grade. And at that point, I, I started like saving my teacher's handouts and things, thinking that I could like build myself a Um, like a resource chest of things to use when I became a teacher. And I just always pictured myself doing this work. As I got older, I just came to love 
literature so much and I found it to be so transformative and exciting that when I first started, I really imagined myself teaching sort of upper level literature and writing, you know, composition courses. And that's not, and that's not where I ended up at first. My first job was in eighth grade and I've actually spent most of my career in middle school, although I'm back in high school right now. And as the years have gone by, I found myself more and more interested in the relationships with the kids, with, you know, fostering them between the students themselves, and also helping them to identify issues in the world that they care about and ways to take meaningful action on those issues. So I've come to kind of think of it as like a whole person development endeavor rather than just a reading and writing endeavor. But um, my skill set and, and my beliefs and values, I think that English, you know, the class of English, discipline of English is a wonderful venue in which to explore yourself and discover yourself and change over time. So it's been a really great fit for me. So Kathleen, your first book that you published, Minor Dramas and Other Catastrophes, uh, how long had you been teaching before you started writing that book? I started writing that when I was 36, I believe, and I started teaching when I was 21. So it'd been, you know, 15 years by the time I started writing it. And I fell into teaching just with teaching, as as you probably know from your son, it's immersive and it can take over your entire life. And if you want to be good at it, it's a constant learning and exploring and reading of research and experimenting. And so I kind of lost some years of writing in there when I was just obsessed with the craft of teaching. And I had a couple kids and got married and stuff. Um, and by the time my youngest son was in first grade, I was ready. Like I, I could have a hobby again. So I thought, well, if I want to write a book and I want to have written a book by the time I'm 40, then I better start working on it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I started working on it with really no idea how to write a book, even though I'm a voracious reader and had been a teacher of literature. I, I didn't really know anything about craft or structure And I think that's why it took me, you know, three years to write the book and then another year in revision with my editor before it came out. So that was a long, a longer project for sure. I'm I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people when they first start writing um, have that that same feeling like I, I don't know how to write a book. I don't really know what the structure should be, even though, like you said, most writers are voracious readers and have read tons of books and you know by osmosis you you kind of understand what the structure of a book is even if you can't articulate it um what like as you started writing did did kind of the um um your natural instincts kick in uh you know you know what story structure is because you've read it over and over again did did those things just kind of come to the surface and and take over uh, Um, at some point or was it a struggle Maybe they came. So at some points they did. Uh, I ended up writing about a hundred pages of that book with no antagonist, just sort of anecdotes about the two main characters. In fact, I didn't really know, and I knew what the inciting incident and the conflict was, but I had no idea kind of how to bring that out or develop it. And I have a really brilliant friend who's also a writer, and we were teaching together at the time, and we had recess to get duty together on Tuesdays. And so one Tuesday, I remember asking him, like, what do you think 
is the bad guy in this story? <laughs> like who <laughs> let, who called and left this voicemail? And he's like, okay, well, who are the possibilities? So I went through the characters, like this person, this person. And then he, he told me who it was. And I was like, of course it's that person. Um, and I, what I really like about working with critique partners like that is that I've usually written myself a little clue or written myself some possibilities in the story, but I just, it's not reached my consciousness yet. And some of my critique partners are very good at helping me figure out where I'm going or where I wanted to go without even knowing. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected. The niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author, Lucy Score. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use, cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. So, you know, first writing those um, sort of collection of vignettes maybe um, before you really um, kind of pin down who the antagonist was and, and what the, the conflict of the book would be. Uh, 
you know, conflict usually comes alongside antagonist. Um, but uh, when now when you're thinking about a new project, because your third book is about to be released soon, uh, Homer Away, when you begin a project now, um, do you kind of know who the who the protagonists are, who the antagonist is, or, or who they are, and what uh, do you have a sense of kind of where the story is going and what the conflict is before you begin it? Yes, um, I I usually send my agent and my editor some ideas, like a synopsis of what I think is going to happen. And now I've done this three times and I'm working on my fourth book now. And I'm usually wrong about some things, but at least I've put myself on a track, you know, to kind of get to where I need to be with each of with book two. Are we there yet? And with Homer away out in March, I reached a stage where I've had to throw away most of what I've done already and begin again. And usually at that point, there's a, a realization about a conflict or a character that I hadn't had before or I actually have cut out main characters at this stage and because they're not working and I'm going to get back in a different way or or something will happen. Um, but yes, I have a much better idea than I did with that first book. And now with my fourth book, it's a murder mystery. So I think that's requiring a totally different level of pre-writing. Like I've been working on this murder mystery for like seven months and I have no pages of the book actually written, but I have so much in my head, way more in my head than I've ever had before. So I'm hoping that's going to translate to a really fast writing time. We'll see. Well, and I, I love that you said that because, um, you know, when we think of someone writing a book, we have this image of them sitting at the keyboard or, you know, scribbling on a notepad or, or whatever. Uh, but the majority of writing actually happens in that, in that time where you're, you're dreaming about the story and you're, yeah. You're kind of following these characters around in, in, in your mind, for lack of a better term. And that is just as important to the writing process, if not more important than the, the sitting down and tapping the keys, isn't it? I think that's really true. Although you can't skip the tapping of the keys. Of course not. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, have a I lot wish of, we could. Yeah, so. I, me too. I have a lot of fun with the idea development, especially because I, you know, I teach these wonderful students and sometimes I can bring them in, you know, I'll say to my homeroom or something, okay, this character has a really big secret that she tells this person in this situation. What do you think the secret is? Mm -hmm. And I'll have no idea what it's going to be. And it's really fun to hear their ideas. And sometimes I'll be able to steal something and sometimes it will just spark the right idea for me. So I think dreaming about a story is both important and can be like a really fun collaborative part of the process. Kathleen, on your website, it says Kathleen is particularly interested in the topics of motherhood, ambition, competitive parenting, and the elusiveness of work-life balance. Um, having started your writing career when your son was in the first grade, I think you said. Yes. Um, was uh, was just kind of the, the stage of life that you were in and the people you were surrounded by, did, did that kind of fuel what would kind of become a niche for you? Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think my thoughts about being a mother had been really intense and evolved. I think that motherhood is something that most women have ideas about. Um, and we're, we're ready with judgments about, and we think there's, a you know, kind of a hierarchy of strategies to do parenting. And yeah. I've also, as a teacher, been really interested in the ways that parents both take credit for and blame for, their children's 
um, successes and failures. And so those topics were, were just really interesting and immediate to me. And so my first two books are really strongly about parenting. And then in my third book, Homer Away, I, I veered from that. I think it's a departure for me, pretty significant departure, although it still is based in a family, a hockey family, but it's still based in that family. Um, so there are some, you know, there's a continuation of an exploration of theme there, but also dealing with some new issues. So in your book, Are We There Yet? And it's uh, it came out in paperback yesterday when people are hearing this. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, what was the the inciting incident in your mind that birthed the story? And, and I love to, I'll just warn you now, I love to ask people about where ideas begin. Because yeah. um, at, at one moment, Are We There Yet? does not exist in any form or fashion. And then either <laughs> a character walks onto the stage of your mind or... You're thinking, you know, maybe you oversee or overhear something at, at a, um, you know, at a sporting event or something, and you know, then the ideas start kind of percolating. What was that moment of inspiration that birthed? Are we there yet? Yeah, it is so interesting how like one moment nothing is there, and the next moment something is there, um, and you keep hoping. You, I mean, I'm perpetually hoping that there will be another idea that comes after the one that I've had. Otherwise, where would we be? But with Are We There Yet, it started as, um, you know, the germ of the book came when I sold Minor Dramas. My editor offered me a two-book deal, and I had no ideas for that second book. (laughs) So I was like, well, gosh, and it was due a year from the time that we signed the contract. So I knew I had to come up with something. Um, And I'd always been very interested in writing about adoption. I was adopted at birth. And thinking about how that's impacted my life and impacted the various facets and members of my family was something really exciting to me. So I started out with the adoption part of that story. Um, And I was thinking about how my sisters, so I have a half sister on each side of my birth family. So one is the daughter of my birth father. One is the daughter of my birth mother. They're both eight years younger than I am. And their birthdays are February 1st and March 1st. So they are You know, really, yeah, it's really aligned and interesting how it worked out. But I was thinking about how they might have reacted and did react to learning about my existence and what that was like for them, what it would be like to find out that your place in your family isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. And so the conflict between Alice and her mother was what came first in that story. And then as I started writing the teen characters, as often happens, I have teenagers in each of my books, probably because of my career in teaching. I started writing the teen characters and their voices just became so compelling to me and so interesting that the side of the story about them kind of became the main side of the story and the Alice's family drama became sort of secondary. But that's where it started out. Gotcha. So your your writing process, um, are do you consider yourself more a pantser or a plotter? Do you, and, 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 you know, yeah. the, the, we love to talk about these camps in the writing community, but um, <laughs> do, do you know the story before you sit down to start drafting? Do, do you work on, um, you know, laying out bullet points that you're going to write to, or are you just discovering it as you go? I write bullet points, but then I also discover So it's usually a hybrid of those two things. And I do find that the magic happens like after I start typing. So, you know, I, 
I, I think of um, writing as I do running. Something else that I also really love in theory, and I mostly love it after I've done it. So <laughs> yeah. it's the same with it's the same with writing. Like I'm really happy after a good writing day. I almost never am excited to start. And I found that if I can just give myself a little bit of freedom when I start, that really helps. So I've taken a couple of strategies to help me with that. And one of them I got from a teacher whose name is Mary Carol Moore. And her strategy is just in the back of a notebook, write out a list of scenes that you know has to appear, have to appear in the book at some point. Just, you know, I, I know this has to happen and this has to happen and maybe give yourself 20 to 30. And then on any given day, pick one that you're going to just take a stab at. So I, it really helps me to write out of order. And then I'm able to kind of get myself going. And very frequently, I will write something that I wasn't aware of, either a character trait or a secret or a interaction between one thing and another thing that surprises me. And those surprises always happen once I force myself to sit down. So I think it's a hybrid. I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but I think most people are a hybrid of those. I, I, I know very, very few people that are just solidly in one camp. Um, I, I, you know, people, you know, love to talk about being a pantser, um, but I've not yet met anyone who just sits down and has no earthly idea what's going to come out. Um, you know, so anyway, the, the hybrid. Yeah, I think you'd have to do some serious revision if that were the case, because you would how think would so. it possibly hold together? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there's some savant out there that can do it. Yeah. And, and then at that point, aren't you just editing uh, or aren't you just outlining after the fact? Yeah. Um, you know, so anyway, that's it's semantics, maybe, but you <laughs> maybe. Know, what, whatever. Um, so after having uh, written and published your your first two books, Minor Dramas and Other Catastrophes, your first one, the second one, Are We There Yet?, uh, which is now out in paperback, um, then shifting gears to your new book, Home or Away, which comes out next month and you can pre-order it now. Um, you said that there was a, a a tonal shift in this book, and and um, yeah. what what was the um, the impetus for this book, and and what were you thinking in the the early stages of this book? Did did you know this was going to be a different kind of book? Not really. I want. I knew I wanted to write a book about sports. I love sports, and um, my both of my sons are really athletic and have been involved in sports. So I've been a sports parent and just watching how that goes and viewing the intensity of sports, thinking about people who dedicate their entire lives to like becoming a great soccer goalie or something, and then facing the injury that ends it all for them and having to remake themselves. These topics were really fascinating to me as my agent and I started brainstorming ideas for that third book. And I, I went to, the book is about two women who were both on the cusp of making the 2002 Olympic women's hockey team. And in Minnesota, the late 90s, that was the beginning of hockey here. I think state high school hockey started for girls in 1994. So these women would have been like pioneers in that environment. And they would have had to have played with the boys all the way through like it would require as any elite athlete, but it would require like a singular focus and a constant um, you know, success at rule breaking and infiltration of, you know, communities that they weren't welcome in and all these things. So I was thinking about this and then I needed to develop some secrets for one of them. One of them doesn't make the Olympic team and one does. 
and Lee, the one who doesn't make the Olympic team. Um, I wanted to write about that disappointment, but then in writing her backstory, I knew there had to be some pretty traumatic events. And my writing style is generally pretty funny. But as I was working on that book, I was like, well, gosh, there's really nothing funny about sexual harassment. Right. So um, my book, it's just doesn't have the same level of humor or the same lightness to it. But on the other hand, I think I managed to infuse it with my usual style, partly because I have an eight-year-old character in this one. And that eight-year-old boy just has a childlike sensibility to him, obviously. And I think that comes through in, in his chapter. So, um, but yeah, overall, it's really different. The I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the the idea of of levity in a in a story, uh, especially one that's dealing with topics like sexual harassment, that's um, you know awful and um, can be uh, daunting to read and to to live through vicariously, like mm-hmm. like we do as readers. Um, and you know, lots of different books um, kind of ramp up the emotional tension in different ways. Um, but you can't just leave um, a reader just kind of their adrenaline pegged out all the time. You need to to let off the gas a little bit, let them recover before you hit them again with something, you know, really um, earth shattering. And it, that that makes the the up moments really up, um, you know, if, if you let them come down a little more. Um, the, were you thinking about ways to inject those moments of levity, like with your eight-year-old character, or did that just kind of naturally come out in the writing? Like, did did that eight-year-old character just show up, or were were you thinking, you know, I, I need a character that's going to fill this role, and and came up with that? You know, I think um, again, kind of a combination of both, and in the final revisions, like structuring thing and structuring things and maybe reordering chapters. I was a little bit more cognizant of that. Um, the eight-year-old came about, he's the daughter of Lee who doesn't make the Olympic team. And in the book, they're moving back to Minnesota from Florida so that he can have a chance at becoming a great hockey player. Minnesota hockey, youth hockey is um, really popular and intense here with every city fielding, every you know suburb fielding multiple teams at each skill level. So it's a really great place to play hockey if you're interested in being the best. Um, and so she moves him back here for that. And in, in that process, she re-enters the hockey community that she had previously left behind. One thing I really like to explore is how kids interpret their parents and other adults' actions. And I think that's why I like having kids in my books as POV characters. Um, I like seeing their judgments <laughs> of their of their parents and teachers and just their thinking about how things are going down and their expectations for themselves. So Gus is there because he's part of the family and he's the reason why they moved back. But one a couple benefits of Gus um, are that he gives us that view of Lee as a mom and also he's pretty funny, you know, because he's eight and he keeps a diary of how often he's practicing hockey and he gives himself a rating on each performance. And he has this habit of collecting big words that his mother and grandfather use, especially that he quotes to himself, things like tenacious and ambitious related to his hockey performance. And he's kind of sweet. He's not always funny, but he's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You said something a minute ago that that um, 
that I wanted to be sure to ask you about. You you talked about brainstorming ideas with your agent. Oh yeah. Um, that you know, as someone who's uh, you know publishing her third book, um, as opposed to that first book, and then you know maybe a follow up because you signed the contract. Um, how is that creative process different now at this stage of your career? Because now you do think about um, the marketability of a book mm-hmm. and and kind of where your place is in the publishing industry. And um, is is that is the the beginning of a project? Is is that that process? Of course, it's different for you. But you know, now that you have someone that you can kind of brainstorm ideas for what's next. And uh, how how does that how is that different from when you first began? Yeah, it's totally different. And it's also a gift. I mean, my agent is really smart and she understands story. She has her finger on the you know pulse of the industry. She has guesses about trends and things, although it's always impossible to write to a trend. So it's all it's really important to think about the story that you want to tell, even if you're also thinking about trends in the market, et cetera. And I find it to be a relief, you know, that nobody expects me to be sort of this creative person in a vacuum coming up with endless ideas all by myself. I don't think that there are many writers that are working that way. Um, Maybe there are the literary geniuses, you know, of the world (laughs) that are doing that. But in terms of writers who are writing commercial fiction like I am or upmarket book club fiction and we're writing a book a year or at least, you know, a book every year and a half or something, I think that we're working with critique partners and people who can help us develop our ideas. And I find it to be a relief and really fun Um, because also I don't want to spend a year or eight years writing a book that my publisher doesn't want to publish. Um, Sure. You know, so I think it's helpful. With this fourth book that I'm working on now, I, I did spend six months on an idea that my publisher just decided wasn't right. And that was okay with me. I was fine with just saying goodbye to that idea and moving on to the next one and happy that I didn't spend more time on it. You know, happy to see like, oh, this isn't where we want you to go for this. And I do think it would be a legitimate and valid choice for someone to say, well, I want to write this other project and I don't care if if my publisher likes it or any publisher likes it. Um, But I just think you have to know that that's what you're getting into. Sure. Um, do you do you think that uh, that 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 idea that was abandoned? Um, do you file that away and and maybe one day you think of the key that will unlock that story to make it something dynamic and fascinating, or, or are you just happy to have spent that time exploring some with those characters and you know move on? I do think that any writing is valuable, so I'm happy to have spent the time. I think I'm going to take. I'm going to take two characters out of it or one, yeah, two characters out of that story and put them in a new story. So I did this before with the book that I had started before. I had written for a year on a different book before I started Minor Dramas, my first novel. And I did take Alice, the main character in Are We There Yet, out of that book. So I'm sometimes able to, you know, excavate or (laughs) scavenge something from a previous draft um, or previous idea. Or maybe, and maybe like I have this image, the book that's not going to work. I hadn't, I've been calling it golf course murder book because this woman is found dead on the golf course. <laughs> and I really like the the opening image I have of a grandmother dead in the water hazard with like a 
like a heron or a egret next to her. So maybe at some point, like that could be the inciting incident in a different book, maybe, or someone else can take it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, Kathleen, I absolutely love uh, everything that you're doing. What a, a great uh, corner of the market that you have uh, chiseled out for yourself. Um, are we there yet? Available everywhere now in hardcover and paperback now. Um, Homer Away comes out next month. You can go pre-order it now. We're going to have links to both of those in the show notes of this episode. Uh, so go uh, grab it you know, from Amazon with the links or Audible uh, audiobooks or go visit your local bookstore. Um, Kathleen, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing, where can they find you online? Ooh, I'm really easy to find online, although Kathleen West is a very common name. Um, but if you just Google Kathleen West author, my Instagram will come up. It's Kathleen West writes at Kathleen West writes and on Twitter. I'm K West books. Um, I'd love to have the same name across platforms, but because Kathleen West is so common a name, it's tricky. But if you just Google me with the with author attached, I'll come up and you'll be able to find me. And I love interacting with readers and visiting book clubs. So feel free to reach out. And we'll link up those social uh, accounts in the show notes to make it easier for folks to find you. Kathleen, uh, we're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Are We There Yet? And to pre-order Home or Away. uh, And we'll put links to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you for having me and for asking me such interesting questions. I loved it. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. The year was 1834. The month was December. I was 14. Irving's tale was by then well known. The characters of Brom Bones and the beauteous Katrina were widely understood in town to refer to my parents. Rumors persisted. I heard the name of Headless Horseman whispered. My father dismissed all these tales, calling them malicious. Yet more than once I saw him and my mother scanning Agatha's face across the supper table, finding only a secret smile and a look of defiance. I found the rumors fascinating. I followed Agatha like a pup, waiting for her to cast some magic spell. And one day she did. The household servants had set a fire in the hearth for her comfort, and she sat close to it, counting out small gold coins upon a lap board. I hid in the shadows, hoping she might drop a coin and I could retrieve it for myself. One of her servants, a West Indian girl, carried a snowy log into the room and set it on the fire. It began to hiss and pop. The snow melted, and the fire sputtered out. Agatha cursed as I had never heard her do before. She stood, spilling all the gold, and slapped the idiot girl across the face. The girl ran, and my grandmother muttered to herself, searching for match and tong to no avail. When she was not looking, I crept forward and took for myself one of the gold pieces. Then something remarkable occurred. My grandmother sighed, knelt before the fireplace, reached for the logs, and her right hand caught a fire. Flame blossomed and coiled about her wrist. I gasped and cried out, Shh! Don't be afraid, my Dylan. Your hand! She raised her palm. Flame sat cupped in it, casting the shadow of her fingers upon the ceiling and walls. Lock the door, she said. I obeyed. 
She pointed to the floor, and I sat, waiting breathlessly. This is the Van Brunt gift. It will be your gift as well, soon, and your children's forever afterwards. Why does it not burn you? I asked. Why should it? Do I deserve to be burned? No. Then I am safe from the fire. Do you deserve to be burned, my Dylan? I shook my head. Show me. I reached for the flame and took it. I pulled back at once, crying out with pain, wagging my fingertips. The fire caught my sleeve. I could not rid myself of it, as if I clutched burning tar. The pain intensified. The blisters broke, and a rivulet of lymph ran down my arm. Your conscience knows, Dylan. You deserved to be burned. Say it. I deserved to be burned, said I. Again! I deserved to be burned! She turned her palm. The gold piece. I nodded and brought the stolen coin from my pocket. She took it and raised it to the light. You cannot wield the flame with guilt in your heart, son. Try, and it will devour you. Do you understand? I nodded. A Van Brunt should not be so weak. I'm sorry I took the gold, grandmother. I'm sorry I was bad. Don't be ashamed of me. She frowned and laid the gold coin on her lapboard. She shook her head sadly. I'm not ashamed that you took the gold. I'm ashamed that you felt the guilt.